Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, Socialist Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant will face a recall election after all. The candidates for Seattle mayor square off in their first debate dealing with homelessness and zoning laws. New polling data doesn't look good for defenders of the status quo. And getting a religious exemption from the vaccine won't guarantee you a job. But first, the race for Seattle City Attorney is one of the most contentious fights on the ballot this year. Longtime incumbent Pete Holmes was knocked out in the primary, and the two that advanced to the general are Ann Davison and Nicole Thomas Kennedy. Whoever is elected, one thing is for certain, how that office is handled and operated will change. Joining us now is one of the candidates, Nicole Thomas-Kennedy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, let's first start with the elephant in the room. This past week, past tweets of yours surfaced, many of them controversial. In them, you refer to police as pigs and Nazis. You praise the person who set off an improvised explosive device at the East Precinct as a hero. And on Christmas Eve, you tweeted that cops should, quote, choke on a COVID-laced expletive. Do you stand by those statements? Um, those were things that I tweeted that were kind of in the midst of the protests that were happening last year. And, um, and I, you know, the prevailing tone of Twitter is snark and insults. I was not a candidate at that time. Um, and I support the right of any citizen to engage in snark and insults on Twitter. And that's what I did. Am I going to do that going forward? No, I am not. Well, you had to know these were going to come out when you decided to run. Right, but I didn't know I was going to run when I tweeted them. Do you apologize for the tweets? Um, you know, some of those were kind of childish. Some I regret, um, but, but others I don't. And I, you know, when we're talking about apologizing, what was happening at the time that I tweeted a lot of those things was my neighborhood was being gassed repeatedly. And I had to buy a gas mask for my nine-year-old daughter. And police were uh, repeatedly lying about the reason why they did that to the entire neighborhood. And so, you know, I think when we're talking about apologies, some mean tweets versus my daughter being gassed, I just I don't see the correlation. They're not they're not equivocal. Well, your tweet spanned several months. So uh, you're an attorney and any opposing counsel would say it's kind of hard to argue they were sent in the heat of the moment during last summer's protests when there were several of them over the course of the year. Sure. And so I didn't I didn't mean that I sent them in the heat of the moment. I'm providing the context on which I in which I sent them. Um, and the protests weren't over like when when police stopped gassing my neighborhood. They went on after that. And there was lots of things that happened after that as well. Turning to the race, if elected city attorney, you would have to be working with Seattle police on prosecuting misdemeanor crimes. Mm-hmm. Have you kind of poisoned the well, so to speak? Well, I mean, there's many at SPD that don't like Pete Holmes either. Like, I think that there's there's, you know, the the department is not all of the same people. You know, most of the tweets that I was speaking uh, or most of the tweets were speaking back to, like, the Mike Solons and um, and those that were telling lies on Twitter. So I think that there is a lot of people in there's a lot of officers within SPD that don't necessarily agree with the approach that was taken last summer. Um, And so and then there's also the issue of there was no police accountability in the last contract negotiations. And so I think moving forward, we don't need more deference to police because that has shown not to be helpful. What we need is accountability. Accountability is one thing, but you describe yourself as an abolitionist. What does that mean? 
So abolition is a movement. Um, and what the abolitionist movement wants is to build up community support and services um, so we can have healthy communities that don't need cops, courts, and jails for everything. It's not an overnight everything's gone, murder is legal. It's more about building healthy communities that don't need police. And, you know, there's a lot of communities out there that are like that, that are, that are um, you know, the safest communities are the healthiest ones, not the ones that are over-policed. And so that is the goal of abolition, is to build um, healthy communities. Well, I don't think anyone would argue that police doesn't policing doesn't need to be reformed, but you're never going to have a society absent of crime. So how do you enforce the law? Well, like I said, it's not an overnight process. It's a goal. The goal is to get to a place where we don't need police and prisons for everything. That's going to take a long time. We are not there yet. So I'm not saying we need to get rid of all police or all laws right now, but it's a, it's a goal that we need to be moving forward on because what we've been doing for the past 40 years with mass incarceration has just expanded the power of police and prisons and it's created havoc through our country. It's massively expensive and it's extremely racist. Um, and so we need to start working on doing something different. What is that? You say this is a long-term goal, but you'd be elected to a four-year term. What could you do as city attorney? So there's lots of things on my website, ntkforjustice.com, if you want to dive into my platform. But really, it is about stop, like stopping wasting tax dollars, prosecuting poverty or disability, because jail doesn't make someone less poor. Does it, you know, the person that stole a sandwich, we cost, it costs about $10,000 to prosecute that person. And there's nothing about prosecuting that person that is going to make them less hungry. And so what I want to focus on is repair for victims. And so for people in small businesses, I'm going to have a victim's compensation fund so they can get some repair because currently under the regular system, there's nothing. Um, and then also doing things that address the root causes, poverty, addiction, and mental illness. And we are not, you know, we prosecution's not going to solve any of those problems, but it is sucking up all the resources we need to do that work. And so if we want to get to a place of prevention, we're going to have to prioritize care. But how is that the purview of the Seattle City Attorney? Mental health would be the Department of Health or, or some <coughs> other agency. As, as the city attorney, it's your job to prosecute misdemeanor crimes. No, that's not that's not the duty of the city attorney. The city attorney is to use discretion to decide which crimes to prosecute and then prosecute the ones that it's been decided it is in the interest of justice to prosecute. But haven't, also, haven't you abdicated that? You said you don't want to prosecute misdemeanor crimes. How is that discretion by just saying a blanket statement that you don't want to prosecute? Well, I mean, I didn't say that. So that's how I would answer that. So clarify your position. So you can go to my website because it's very nuanced, but cases of interpersonal violence, things like that, I think prosecution needs to remain an option, but we need to be survivor centered and giving survivors what they need in order to heal and stay safe. And that is not always prosecution. So, you know, there's a, a couple of things I think for repeat DUIs. I don't think we are not in a place for the, that the community can let go of those things yet. We don't have something built up that then that can take care of those things. Um, for a lot of other stuff, though, we have diversionary programs um, and and, you know, things like mental health um, and addiction. Those are absolutely within the purview 
of the city attorney because they are related to public safety. And so increasing our reliance on things that actually reduce violence and reduce harm, um, like addiction services, like mental health services are 100% within the purview of the attorney, city attorney. So what wouldn't you prosecute? I mean, there's, it's hard to say categorically that I wouldn't prosecute any anything that came across but like i will say i will not prosecute sex work and i will not prosecute drug possession those two things are completely ineffective in dealing with those problems um i think when we're talking about prosecuting poverty which is so much of what is in that court um there's just better ways of dealing with it um but but everything is a like the part discretion is looking at these cases and deciding what we're going to do them with them. So other than sex work and drug possession, I don't think I can categorically say I'm not going to prosecute any of X, Y, and Z. When you say prosecuting poverty is what's going on right now, what do you mean? What crimes specifically would fall under that? Um, usually it's either theft for people stealing food um, small amounts of food. I'm not talking about people loading up their grocery carts and walking out of Safeway. I'm talking about small amounts of food, sandwich, uh, a block of cheese and a beer, or, um, or a coat from Goodwill in the winter, uh, dry shoes from Goodwill in the winter. Those are crimes of poverty that the city does. It's a waste of money to um, spend taxpayer dollars on those things. Oh, also trespass. So a lot of the trespass cases are for people who don't have anywhere to um, that are unsheltered, that sleep under an awning or something like that. Those, those are crimes of poverty that, um, that, that prosecution does nothing to solve. We've also seen, in, in particular, around homeless encampments, I don't think anyone can deny that there is a crime element that goes along with some of these encampments. But we've also seen an increase of more violent crimes. Granted, felonies go to the county level. Mm -hmm. Probably the most violent thing you would have to deal with uh, as and you're an attorney, you'd probably be able to tell me this more, but would be something like fourth degree assault. Would you still prosecute those? So assault is a crime of interpersonal violence. And so for crimes of interpersonal violence, prosecution has to remain an option. Um, it, de it depends on the case. It depends on the survivor. It depends on a lot of things like I can't make a blanket guarantee about, um, like I said, about anything except for drug possession and uh, sex work. What about the laws? Uh, obviously, your job as city attorney and, and part of that role is prosecuting misdemeanor crimes or, as you say, using discretion in prosecuting misdemeanor crimes. But what about the laws that would need to be changed? What would you look at? Because a lot of city attorneys or county prosecutors or state AGs advocate for changes to the statutes. What would you change? So I would um, change the statutes around sex work and drug possession. Those are the things that in the Seattle Municipal Code that I think don't need to be there. Leading Democratic voices in Washington state have now endorsed your opponent, including former Governor Christine Gregoire, who was also the state attorney general. So he, she has some experience in this area. She described you as a terrorist. How do you respond? I mean, she described me as a terrorist because of some mean tweets I sent to police. Um, or, you know, and and some sarcastic uh, responses to trolls. I mean, she doesn't know me. I think it's wild that she uh, makes that accusation over some tweets um, and she hasn't looked at my platform. She never reached out to me. Um, just the assumption that goes along with it. You know, I think 
is is pretty absurd. All right, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, candidate for Seattle City Attorney. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When we come back, her opponent, Ann Davison, joins us when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Earlier, we spoke with Nicole Thomas Kennedy, one of the two candidates for Seattle City Attorney. Now, we're joined by her opponent, Ann Davison. Ann, welcome. It's good to be with you. Well, let's begin with your history. You've ran before city council, lieutenant governor, but you've also switched parties. You now consider yourself a Republican. Why the change? Uh, I'm also a mom and an attorney. I've been practicing uh, in Seattle since 2005. Uh, It's important to to note that what I'm talking about is always Seattle-specific issues. I'm wanting to make sure it's time that we talk about reconciling the fact that we've been failing to meet the needs of the most vulnerable in our city, as well as the basic functions of public health and safety. Have your philosophies changed? No, they've stayed the same. Focused on Seattle, making sure we are getting help to people who are pushed to the literal margins of our society. And oftentimes they are victims of crime. uh, And and we are just, uh, many of us are going on about our business and taking care of things in our busy lives. But it's time that we really are focused on making making our public safe. uh, And that is every in every sector of society for quality of life across our city. So if your philosophies haven't changed, why change parties? What's the difference? I think when we're talking about uh, our social issues and approaches to problem, it needs to have an objective eye and look at what's working and what's not working. Uh, and you can see from our trajectory of Seattle that some, some things have not been working and we need to be open to other ideas. I think it's important to, to focus on, on evidence and be objective uh, and to open dialogue, to uh, have meaningful discourse that is positive, not negative. Uh, we, we don't need any more of that. We've had plenty of that and we certainly don't need any more of that. Uh, and unfortunately that's where, uh, very sadly, my opponent has has put out to the public uh, a large amount of hateful speech uh, recently. In the, I think it's important to know that when we're talking about safety and protection for the city of Seattle, we want to do so in a positive way. So we're moving forward for the future of Seattle. The reason why I ask about political parties is because Seattle is a very left-leaning city. In fact, having an R after your name is very often the kiss of death in a political campaign. Granted, city attorney is technically nonpartisan and R won't appear after your name on the ballot. But are you concerned that as people study your history, study your background, if they find the fact that you are now a Republican, that would make it a lot more difficult for you to get elected. Again, it, it is about uh, looking what reality would be like in the city of Seattle if my opponent were to win when she calls herself an abolitionist, seeking to defund and abolish the police, saying reform is not good enough, abolish the courts, defund the criminal division, and not prosecute most misdemeanor crimes in the city of Seattle, which is most of our crimes. Uh, we are talking about the future of Seattle. It is about what is responsive and being uh, running that office for leading the head attorney for our city in providing legal advice to those who are elected to create policy, impartial legal advice, professional, top-notch, impartial legal advice, as well as overseeing the criminal prosecution of misdemeanor crime within the city of Seattle. That is really the main point of what voters should be talking about. We'll get to the prosecuting of crimes in just a moment, but having run several times before, critics have derided you as something of a gadfly, a perennial candidate. Clearly, you've had higher political ambitions, so why this office and why now? I've always talked about Seattle. I love Seattle. I've been here for 25 years. I'm raising my young kids here. The social modeling that we are allowing to occur and what they socially inherit along with their peers is really important. I think in the public discourse, we need to have positive leadership people who are brave to step out in the forefront and be courageous to make sure that the 
the conversation we have socially is about what is happening on the margins of our city. And we are leaving people to deteriorate. I have spent time working in a refugee camp on the border of Cambodia where people were fleeing civil war. It was more humane and hygienic than what we have left people to subsist alongside our roadways of Seattle. And it is time to have a conversation that is meaningful, to be impactful positively for everyone across our city. Prosecuting misdemeanor crimes, as we've sort of talked about, is a major part of the job of the Seattle City Attorney. But your work has been mostly on the civil side, typically with contract law. So what makes you qualify to be the city's chief prosecutor? I would set the tone and direction of the city attorney's office. Uh, And that is to be distinct, that I want to make sure it is run in a professional, civil, respectful way. The standards that we want to have in our city are similar. Uh, I would hire subject matter experts, surround myself with seasoned experts that are, that that is their professional work focus is being prosecutors. We have many that are in the office now who have started to feel uh, very mischaracterized that they are there to be mean spirited, mean hearted towards people who are accused of crime. It's quite the contrary. They are there to speak for victims, victims who have now been lost in, in public dialogue when we focus on what my opponent wants to focus on, which is to overlook that harm has been caused. We want to center victims again. It is a balancing between public interest and safety, the victims and the accused. We look at why someone's communicating the form of a crime. Absolutely. There's a place for compassion. Absolutely. It is a big space within, within our society. But the role of city attorney is to make sure that we are protecting the victims and the public as well. For the civil side, you're right. Most of my 17 years of practice is in civil law, and a lot of it is in contracts. When we're looking about, we're talking about human services contracts, uh, all types of permitting agencies uh, that we have run through with regulations and contracting for our city. We need to make sure that we have someone who can run things in a way that is professional and civil and understands how to give legal advice to entities and to people that are not policy and political advice. You listen to my opponent, she has a radicalized agenda. She does not want to be a city attorney. She does not want to do anything in regards to prosecution of crime. And she wants to set forward her own types of policy. That is not what the role is. The role is to be impartial, legal advice for those who are elected to create policy in a professional, respectful and civil way. But how can the city attorney truly deal with the issues of crime and public safety? Uh, Most people don't have a legal background and they don't know that major crimes, felonies, are prosecuted by the King County prosecutor. Misdemeanors, only low-level crimes, are handled by the city. So how can you truly deal with these major issues of public safety? We need to make sure that the public understands that that term low-level needs to be unpacked. And there is is some things that are maybe uh, can be construed as low-level and they have they're being done so by my opponent but let's just talk about some of these things some of these are these are domestic violence assault harassment harassment with sexual motivation there is reckless endangerment unlawful intimidation with a weapon like we've had down in Jenkins Park where there's the discharge of a firearm around youth football uh, practice going on Uh, DUIs cyber stalking stalking with sexual motivation these are all misdemeanor crimes Uh, these are not low level these are quality of life And we also need to know that there's things called filing standards at the county level so that statutorily something might be classified on paper as a felony, but it is not charged as such. For example, they're looking at theft. They won't touch uh, around unless it's over $2,000. So essentially, my opponent is telling everyone in the city of Seattle, if you're a store owner, if you have a small business and someone, multiple people come in repeatedly day after day after day and steal things that are are between $1,000 and $2,000, she's not going to prosecute it because it's property crime. And she said that uh, property destruction is a moral imperative. 
Uh, we are, that is a felony, but it's not going to be charged as such. So that's going to become a misdemeanor at the city attorney's level. That is what we're talking about. Those are not low level. Misdemeanors do matter. If we let that type of reputation be within the city of Seattle, we are saying goodbye to small businesses at every corner store in every neighborhood of Seattle. That is no way to recover from COVID. That is no way to move forward for the future of Seattle. That is no way to get workers jobs, businesses staying alive and neighborhoods having their groceries and food and everything close to their own uh, neighborhood where they live. Misdemeanors do matter. But how would you handle those higher level crimes that may be technically a felony but get charged as, uh, as a lower level crime kicked down to the misdemeanor court? How would you handle those? We want to look at things that are a high impact so that we can use the resources that we have within the office in a very strategic way to enhance public safety across every sector of Seattle. Uh, we look at high impact. What is what is it that is going to increase in severity and frequency so that we are making sure we are taking care of those who are seeking to create mayhem? Again, my opponent, if she when she says she doesn't want to prosecute most misdemeanors, that is inviting lawlessness and disorder. There is no way our city can function in a productive way for anyone uh, if that is the, the, the way we go forward in Seattle. We can do a positive impact on public safety by looking at high impact crime and addressing that with, within the office. Finally, what's the single most important message you want to get out to voters? This race really is pivotal for our future. It is a time to make a difference where we can have a safer Seattle with compassion. Accountability is there for all of us. I put that on me, on the city attorney's office, anyone who's engaged in law enforcement, and anyone who wants to commit criminal acts. We all are better as a city if we are going to be focused on accountability with compassion, seeking reform and safety for the future of Seattle. All right, Ann Davis and candidate for Seattle City Attorney, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. When we come back, the latest poll numbers show change may be coming to City Hall when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. We're in the midst of an election season, and that means there's a lot of polling going on out there, and the latest poll on Seattle politics doesn't show good numbers for the incumbents. Joining me now is founder of Strategies 360, political analyst Ron Dotsauer and the Strategies 360 Como News poll really showed some challenging numbers, particularly for the Seattle City Council, didn't it? Sure did. In fact, you know, a couple of standard industry questions you always do on every research. There's the right direction, wrong track question, which has been used for years and years and years to sort of measure general attitudes about an institution or whatever it is. And in this particular case, when they were asked about the uh, the direction of the city council, the right direction was 32%, wrong track was 62%. That is a substantial number of wrong track responses. It even goes on further when you ask the fav- unfavorable questions of the, of the city council. Their total favorability is 28%, but yet the total unfavorability is 57%. Now, what does that really mean? Well, it means this. Normally in Almost any election, if you're running for office, you want to have your favorabilities at least two to one, the favorable over unfavorable. This is a case where the city council's favorability is two to one in the opposite direction. They have a double down on unfavorability to 57% to 28% for favorable. So it's just a very poor rating for the Seattle City Council. Now, 
Question is, will that transfer and how it will behave in the, in the ballot? It just means if you're an incumbent member of the city council, you're, you are to- toting some political baggage, Jeff. We'll get to the big race, and that is Seattle mayor in just yeah. a second. But sticking with the city council, there are only two races yep. that are up this cycle, and those are the two yep. at-large races. Uh, one is an open seat because Council President Lorena Gonzalez yep. has decided to run for mayor. The other one yep. is Teresa Mosqueda, and she is the lone incumbent in those two races yet it looks like she may be headed to victory even with these numbers. How does that work? Well, part of it is, you know, name ID. If your opponent it doesn't have the money to compete, okay, or isn't a really strong candidate, then it becomes a matchup issue. Having said that, this still means that if she had a formidable opponent, she would be in trouble. Now, I'm not saying she doesn't. I'm just saying if that were the case, given these numbers, the city council is probably lucky they don't have more, more council candidates on the ballot frankly. And then moving on to the other city council race, this one's wide open. This is the one that activist Nikita Oliver is going for, the one vacated by Seattle City Council President Lorena Gonzalez as she's running for mayor. What's the likelihood that someone to the left, which is essentially the incumbent, is going to win that? It really comes down to who's got the money to compete too, right? Money may not necessarily a winner make, lack of money ensures losing. So that's always the other sort of X factor because we're not looking at that when we're doing the polling. If somebody's got enough money and they can define the conversation, they can win. Now, having said that, I would not be necessarily embracing the current policies of the city council because, as you can see from these numbers, they are very, very unpopular. Generically speaking, incumbent city council members or city council, period, has such high numbers, high negatives that Jeff, I don't know that I've seen in in a long, long time. That means if you're sort of embracing the current direction of the city council, that's not particularly a place you want to be politically. And then there's the race for Seattle City Attorney. Now, this is the one where it seems that we've got the most people undecided, and that's about 65% in your poll. But the newest revelations, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, the police abolitionist, some very controversial tweets have surfaced uh, from her past. And is that expected to damage her or is that expected to help her considering the political Uh, nature of Seattle? I cannot believe for one second that that will not do damage. If I were running against her, I would take those tweets and I would broadcast them far and wide to every voter in the city of Seattle. In my opinion, if you have an effective campaign, you can disqualify her candidacy with those quotes. But the Seattle mentality of a lot of the voters is, at least in the last year and a half or Um, so, has been kind of anti-police, hasn't it? But not not the level that she's proposing, leading riots against the police. And, you know, I mean, the kind of stuff that she's been saying is on the record. The public's not buying that. The voters are just not where she is and where she says she's been. And so it would be very easy just to take those two quotes and make that the referendum on her. And just, in my opinion, that would be easy to disqualify her candidacy. Some of the things Nicole Thomas Kennedy has said about Seattle police, she called them a sad bunch of losers, called cops serial killers. She even praised someone who set off an explosive device at the East Precinct building, a hero, and even referred to officers as Nazis, pigs, losers, and stains on humanity. But her opponent is Ann Davison, a Republican who actually has since gotten the endorsement of former governors, Dan Evans, Christine Gregoire, and Gary Locke. Does the fact that she has an R after her name 
make it difficult for her? No, because when you go to the ballot, there's no R behind her name. It's a nonpartisan race. Okay. Now her opponent will try to put the R behind her name in their in the campaign stuff. But as a matter of fact, you know, there won't be that kind of voting because it's a nonpartisan race. Number one. Number two, the Gregoire Locke endorsement have made it even easier for partisan Democrats to vote for her. Okay. They've created the pathway. I mean, when Gregoire called her a terrorist. Self-declared anarchist. Uh, if you look that up, that's the same as a terrorist. Is that the answer to the security safety issues that we have in Seattle right now? I don't think so. <laughs> Those are pretty strong words, right? Not only is she the former governor, but she's a former attorney general for the state of Washington. And I think some people forgot about that. So Chris Gregoire on these issues and these matters has a lot of credibility. Earlier, you could have worried about the this quote unquote R, but again, nonpartisan on the ballot. And now she's got credibility from high profile Democrats. I don't see that being a big problem for her anymore. And finally, the big race for Seattle City Mayor incumbent Jenny Durkin not seeking a second term. The two that advanced out of the primary, Bruce Harrell, former Seattle City Council president and current Seattle City Council president Lorena Gonzalez. Yep. Your poll shows still a fair amount undecided, but it looks like Harrell has the edge. Yes, he's got, you know, with all voters, it shows a seven point edge of Harrell over Gonzalez. But if you dig just a little bit deeper, Jeff, look at the fave unfave. He has almost a 19-point spread of favorable over unfavorable. Gonzalez has a nine-point spread of fave over unfave. That question actually gives you a better idea where the voter is going than even the head-to-head stuff, okay? So I think he's in a little stronger position than the head-to-head shows because fave unfave really does is a harbinger of things to come and a best predictor of voting behavior, even more than head-to-head stuff. All right, Strategies 360 founder Ron Dotzer and Como political strategist, thank you so much for your time. You betcha, Jeff. Still to come, the candidates for Seattle mayor faced off in a debate this week what they said when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Of all the issues facing Seattle's next mayor, ending the homeless crisis will likely prove one of the toughest challenges. Como's Joel Moreno reports on this week's head-to-head debates between the two candidates. Both Lorena Gonzalez and Bruce Harrell agree Seattle's approach to the homeless crisis isn't working, but for different reasons. We have lacked true leadership in the mayor's office. I don't come in blaming anyone. These are significant problems. But one major distinction is their approach to sweeps. Any way you define them are ineffective at ending encampments. It is inhumane to allow people to stay in those parks under those conditions. When it comes to campers who turn down offers of shelter, it's individualized on what those consequences will be, but we will figure that out. Gonzalez says we have an obligation to offer people in deep, profound need services and shelter that is appropriate to them. Harold favors preserving single family zoning. Gonzalez thinks apartment units should be available in every part of the city. And we'll have that issue issue of single-family housing or multi-family housing coming up in our next segment. By the way, that's Como's Joel Moreno reporting. Turning to the city council, Shama Sawant will face a recall election after all. King County elections verified more than 11,000 signatures and has certified the petition to remove her from office. Sawant is accused of breaking the law by using city resources for her tax Amazon campaign, illegally allowing a mob of her supporters 
into City Hall after hours and publicly revealing the federally protected address of Mayor Jenny Durkin. Durkin is a former federal prosecutor and as such her residence is kept under wraps. Officials have decided on December 7th as the date for Sawant's recall election. Still to come, getting a religious exemption from the vaccine doesn't necessarily guarantee you a job. We'll have that story when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podla. The head of public transit for the federal government was in our area this week to see how some of your money has been spent. Como's Ryan Harris has more. With the brand new Muckleteo Ferry Terminal as a backdrop, Nuria Fernandez, head of the Federal Transit Administration, talked about the importance of investments to modernize ferry systems around the country. Fernandez tells me she came here with fingers crossed for the infrastructure bill, which includes 90 billion dollars for public transportation, 200 million for ferries that can be used for things like the new terminal or boat replacement. And as we're moving towards a more environmentally friendly, a, a greener fleet, the opportunities for electric and uh, low emission ferries is one that we are not only going to encourage, but we will be partnering with Washington State ferries and other ferry systems around the country. Fernandez also says while those other ferry systems are thinking about electrifying their fleets, Washington is actually doing it. Ryan Harris Como News. And of course, negotiations continue on that infrastructure package in Washington, D.C. Turning to COVID, time is running out for state employees to get vaccinated against the virus. Como's Frank Lindsay has that story. Workers at the State Transportation Department, the State Patrol, and school employees are among those who need to be fully vaccinated by October 18th. That means Monday, October 4th, is the last day for them to get a second dose of the Moderna vaccine or the one-shot J&J vaccine. So far, roughly 4,600 state employees have applied for religious exemptions, and about half of them have been approved. KXLY-TV in Spokane reports 341 state patrol workers have been granted exemptions, but they can't interact with the public, so if they want to stay employed, they'll have to get reassigned and take a pay cut. We're doing all we can to give each of our employees all the information they can that they need to make a, as wise a decision as they possibly can for their particular situation. Chris Loftus with the State Patrol says they hope the employees decide to get vaccinated and stay with the agency. WSP could lose 10% of its workforce because of the vaccine mandate. Frank Lindsay, Como News. Meanwhile, a Washington first responder remains in limbo, not knowing if he'll have a job after October 18th. As Como's Brian Calvert reports, his vaccine exemption faces a hurdle we're likely to hear a lot more about. Earlier this month, paramedic Corey Miles provided his employer with a religious exemption. You see, Corey, like many other first responders, teachers, and state employees, are being told they need to have the COVID vaccine or get a religious exemption in order to continue working. So he did, and Spokane Fire District 8 granted that exemption. This week, Corey learned of another issue. Now I'm being told that there are no reasonable accommodations that can be made for my for me to continue working for Fire District 8. You see, employees mandated to vaccinate can get out of it with an approved exemption, but the red tape doesn't end there. Most employers then have to keep other workers, customers, or in Corey's case, patients, safe from those exempted for religious reasons by way of accommodations. It's like a new hell for those who sought a heavenly reprieve. This is not just my job on the line. This is my career, my passion, and the means by which I provide for my family. At a public meeting this week, we found out Corey had been sent a letter from the fire district saying they intended to let him go because they didn't have the resources to accommodate his exemption. Most who spoke at the meeting sided with Corey Miles. So I ask that you do look at other accommodations. If I am accommodated as a medical provider, sorry, not provider, in the medical fields, 
I look that you please do that for not only Corey, but anybody who else comes up here. Even though this case was on the other side of the state, it's likely about to happen everywhere. On one side, you have someone so against the vaccine mandate they claim a religious exemption, and on the other, you have employers who must make sure other employees and the public aren't at risk. If employers can't cover their backsides, a vaccine exemption won't save your job. And then all this gets punted to the legal system, where resolutions certainly don't happen overnight. Brian Calvert, Como News. And finally, to the hot race for Seattle Mayor. The prospect of opening Seattle's single-family neighborhoods to multifamily housing has become a top campaign issue. Como's Corwin Hake takes a closer look. Mayoral candidate Lorena Gonzalez in her recent debate with opponent Bruce Harrell says a zoning change is key to boosting the city's stock of affordable housing. Making sure that our uh, neighborhoods are not exclusive and simply for the wealthy. Under a new city council measure, the label single-family area would officially change to neighborhood residential area. Council member Andrew Lewis says the new name would not not change zoning, but it would reflect existing reality that so-called single-family neighborhoods are already mixed use. There are, when you take a walk even around Magnolia and Queen Anne, a significant amount of multi-family residences, be they condos, be they apartments. Some are wary, though. I'm not convinced that this is just a technical change. Bonnie Williams worries the new name is a precursor to the actual zoning change Gonzalez proposes, one she fears would forever alter the character of Seattle's single-family neighborhoods. Corwin Hake, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelet. Thank you for listening and have a good week.